If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, really appreciate Chris giving me a passage on church discipline and sexual immorality while he was out of town. I've thanked him more than once for this opportunity. He will get revenge at some point down the road. But it's part of God's word and it's an important part of God's word. And I know it's controversial and it's difficult and and I'll have to be very careful on how I say some things this morning. And my wife, you know, got one of my kids sick so that she didn't have to be here this morning because she's always nervous about how revealing I might be, especially on something uh, like this this morning. Uh, But this is serious stuff and we need to take it serious. It's uh, humbling and sobering. And so let us all look to God's word. I'll read the whole chapter and then we'll slowly work our way through it. First Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse one. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may have a new lump. That you are really an unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all the meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater or revealer or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who are to be judged? God judges those on the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, these are sobering and difficult words. This is a difficult passage. It's hard for us to get our heads around. We know that you are a God of love. We know that you are a God of grace. But we know that you are a God of righteousness, justice, and truth. And Father, it is hard for us here this day, knowing that we are sinners in and of ourselves, knowing that we struggle daily to live as we know we ought. And to look at this passage 
Father, and, and to realize in areas where, where, where we don't want to take this seriously. Uh, many churches don't take this seriously. It is a difficult thing that you have called us to be a part of in the church. Father, I just pray for your spirit to give me words that are true to your word. Father, to give me discernment on, on how to share and how not to share. Father, I just pray for, for those in the congregation that they would have ears to hear. Father, they would hear your truth. That They would not hear me. They would not hear my thoughts or my opinions. But, Father, they would hear your word. Father, be with us this day. Be with us in this place. Be with us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I figured out this week as I was doing my sermon prep that this time of year, this August to September, October, I don't have the exact month written down, is actually the 20th anniversary of me coming to Christ. Uh, I was not a Christian growing up, up until I was about 22 years old. I'm 42 now. I know I look much younger. Okay. Although everybody thinks I look much older than Chris, but that's another issue. And I was thinking back at that time as I was preparing for this lesson about 20 years ago. I had gotten a call when I was a photography assistant in Atlanta, and I was working for a food photographer. We were probably on an Arby's shoot. You go in and see the menu boards at Arby's. I was probably on one of those shoots to produce one of those menu boards at the time. One of my best friends at the time, his, his wife's parents both died in a plane crash suddenly. Um, and I was like, what do you want me to do? And I didn't know what to do. I, I just knew I had to go to go help out a friend. And so I, you know, head back to Birmingham and I come back to Birmingham a lot when I lived in Atlanta. I, me and my friends were a part of uh, for the sake of the children. Let's just call it the hippie culture. I think you adults might know what I'm talking about when I say kind of a hippie culture, even just 20 years ago. And I arrive at my friend's house and. We opened the door, and because we were all a part of the hippie culture, the smoke was so thick that you could not see six inches in front of your face, let alone a foot or two feet. I couldn't see if anybody was in there. It literally was, if you ever seen Fast Times at Ridgemount High, it's like when they opened up the little van door and the smoke rolls out of the vehicle. Because this community of people that I was a part of, When you went through hard times, what did you do? You found ways to avoid pain. You know, they're in the middle of hardship and pain. So what do they do? They avoid pain. So they have a party. They, They said they were there to help for somebody that was mourning something. But literally they had a... It all Anybody that walked by would just assume that what was going on in this place and at this time... It was just a party. And for the first time in my life, my heart sunk because I knew that I didn't know what the answers were, but I knew that this community of people, this arrangement of friends and how they wanted to deal with things was not providing any real answers for the sorrow and the pain 
uh, that my friends were going through. After a course of a few weeks, I uh, began to wonder. I started visiting some churches around Atlanta. I went in a couple churches in which I was, you know, a 22-year-old kid, have no idea, haven't been to church in 15 years at the time. You know, I go into church and I was the you know, youngest person by 60 years and they were very excited to see me. They wanted me to come back because they haven't seen anybody under the age of 75 in a long time. But, you know, providentially, one of my roommates who worked at a restaurant, uh, one of the girls there never worked on Sundays. And Sunday brunch was the best, you know, paying time that anybody could actually work at this restaurant. And so it was kind of shocking. And he goes, I think she goes to church somewhere. Let me get her number. And she contacted me, let me know when her church service was. And so I started going to this church that was actually going through the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith in the evenings, which kind of defines me. I'm actually the first person in the last 200 years to actually be converted to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. (laughs) So those who know me, it's like an aha moment. You know, it's like now we understand why he is the way that he is. It kind of defines a little bit of my interests. But shortly after going there, sometime in that fall, I don't know, can't remember the exact month, sometime in September, October, I feel like it was just starting to get a little colder. We went to a, a fall retreat for all the different singles groups, both this was at in-town community church there uh, near Atlanta and Perimeter Church. And we went to this big singles retreat and I don't remember everything that the speaker was talking about but I remember I, I, looking back I think he was going through some of John Piper's stuff but it was you know desiring God and those kinds of things and I remember just really starting to feel my heart changing understanding for the first time what the gospel really meant I mean when I came to church I didn't know what Old Testament and New Testament was. I didn't know why they kept talking about Jesus and not God. I didn't understand what any of it was about. Well at the end the last night of that little conference uh some 22-year-old somethings they decided to all go on top of a mountain, it wasn't just a part of the the deal and build a bonfire. I mean we were we were mudding it up the hills and all everybody had you know, four wheel drives. We just got up to the top of this mountain and we built a bonfire. And these 20 somethings, 21 probably to 26 year olds sat around and played worship music and shared their sins with one another. They shared their real pains, their struggles, their doubts, their their weaknesses, the things that that they have fallen into, the things that they know others have fallen into, their 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 parents divorces Everything that was going on and was just hard about living the Christian life in a fallen world. And I remember leaving that place the next day, tears falling down my face, realizing for the first time that I was a sinner and I was needing of God's grace. And I realized that how in the world could someone like me? And it was like one of those split screen things you see in a movie where I I could picture The community of people that I was a part of before and the community of people that I was now going to be numbered amongst. And I I realized only God's grace would bring me from that community, the hippie culture, let's call it, and this community of faith. About a month later or so, I was uh, working really hard. I was still a photography assistant and... 
I had to work really late on a Saturday night. We were doing some big shoot for, I think it was Swisher Sweet Cigars. You know, taking pictures of a guy with a uh, convertible out in the middle of nowhere with all the lights. And we didn't get back to the studio till 2 or 3 in the morning. And so I didn't go to church the next day. And the next morning I wake up about, you know, 11 o'clock. My roommate had already woken up and she had gone down to the living room enjoying the things that you enjoy when you're in part of the hippie culture. And I slowly wake up. And I start to walk downstairs as my roommate goes upstairs and I hear a knock at the door. And I look out the window and it's one of the guys that has been discipling me in my young faith. And so I have to open the door and he smells the aroma of the room from my roommate. And he kind of questioned me on why the room smelled the way that it smelled. Hopefully I'm being cryptic enough that I don't know everybody knows what's going on. And I was like, look, it wasn't me. I didn't do what I promise. I've, I've, I've left that world. I'm not a part of that community. I'm part of your community. You know, now in our society, in our world, the, the idea that somebody could confront you and say your activity that you are individually doing is sin. It was wrong. And I have the right to tell you that it's wrong. That seems crazy. But whenever I transferred from being a part of one community to the community of faith, I gave the right to this individual that was discipling me to say that activity is wrong. It's no longer acceptable. And I was willing, like in my heart, I was like, you know, I realized that I could be assumed to be guilty there. And I, you know, I said, I promise it wasn't me, no matter what you think. <laughs> But that's what we have to look at this morning, that whenever we're a part of the church, we we give ourselves to this community and we give a certain level of authority to the church. That we are in this Christian faith together and we are called in in a loving and a right way to judge one another in a right context. Not being judgmental, but really sharing each other's problems. Well, as we go through this passage, we'll work back through it. And I'm going to use uh, these, these three concepts here that I got from when I teach ethics at the seminary. No one keep repeating that earlier story whenever you talk about me teaching at the seminary now. But hey, you know, the sins of my youth, which we'll get on to later. Uh, the three contexts we're going to look at, we're, we're going to look at when we, we're trying to understand Scripture, we're trying to define and interpret Scripture one, one approach that some ethicists use is we need to look at the norm, how, how that passage should be just theologically understood. Then we need to look at the situation, trying to determine, is there any situational difference between the context in the New Testament and our modern context? And then we need to look at kind of the our existential or, or, or for the sake of not using a 50 cent word, our are kind of our emotional goals as we try to apply a certain passage. You know, the the ethics philosophy guys like to use words like existential. Let's just call it kind of kind of our emotional goals. Right. Because if I want to have a right act, it's not just knowing what act the Bible tells me to do, but it's what the Bible tells me to do in that situation with the right motive of my heart. Right. If I'm trying to tell somebody they're wrong and I'm doing it just to prove how good I am and how bad they are, then I'm not really being ethical 
as I'm calling them to repent. So first, let's look at the norm here in verse one through two. We see this. It is actually reported me that there is sexual immorality among you, the kind that is not even tolerated on the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, this is a sobering thing, right? To, to think about Paul is, is writing this Corinthians church. Apparently, there was an individual who his father had remarried, probably a, a younger woman. And then there was a, a affair assumed between this father's son and his new wife. And Paul's saying that there is sexual immorality among you, and therefore this person needs to be removed. And this is harsh. Aren't we a church of grace? Isn't the whole idea of the New Testament is forgiveness and grace? And here's Paul's writing them and saying, remove. He, at the end, he quotes Deuteronomy 17. He says, purge the evil one from among you. I mean, that's straight out of Jonathan Edwards right there, right? Purge the church from all sexual immorality. That that is sobering and difficult things to think about. A somewhat parallel idea comes from Matthew 18, um, verses 15 through 18. We read this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell them to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be lose in heaven. As Paul goes on to say here in verse three, for though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And if I'm present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has done such a thing. When you are in symbol in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, though that his spirit may be saved for the day of the Lord. Difficult things. John Calvin Speaking of church discipline, uh, said this. Discipline is the kind of curve to restrain and tame those who war against the doctrine of Christ. Or it is a kind of stimulus by which the indifference are aroused. Sometimes also it is a kind of fatherly rod by which those who have made some grievous lapse are chastened in mercy with meekness of the spirit of Christ. You know, church discipline isn't really a, a, a popular thing today. Very, very few churches are actually really want to even deal with it. They only deal with it at the last possible opportunity. They, they don't like the idea of the church being involved in individual lives. And it's difficult. How can we at one time believe in grace and yet at the same time believe in discipline? How can we believe in grace and believe in what seems to be law? And, and there's a few things that we need to keep in mind is this is, the, you know, just kind of a caveat, a little aside that we need to keep in mind that there's a difference between being a part of the visible church, being here and being in, in right standing in the community where everybody 
you know, takes showers this morning, puts on nice clothes, comes in and looks nice. And we hide all of our sins and we keep everything straight and narrow and we look good. And we're part of the visible church. And we no one thinks that we've done anything wrong because we're perfect, holy. I mean, in this passage, we're talking about other people. Right. Let's just keep that clear. We're not talking about us because we're all got everything straight. And then there's real salvation. Right. The. People that are part of this invisible church that are actually part of the invisible church who actually have a regenerate heart, right? Who have responded to the call of regeneration and actually believe in the reality of the resurrected and our Lord Jesus Christ. But the church is an institution that God uses to to help build up, to help disciple, to help nurture his people, because this is a fallen world. This is a sinful world. And we have to deal with terrible situations. I mean, we've seen it this week, haven't we? In the last two or three weeks with the website hack. We won't go into any more details there, but we realized that there were 20 million people at least signed up on a website doing things that should get them. Excommunicated, even for many of them from the church, prominent pastors, R.C. Sproul Jr., if you know him, he had signed up for that site, never, never left it, didn't actually pay for anything or do it. But, but he just came forward and has had to step down from his position. We live in a world where we are bombarded with the realities of the same kind of situation, the same kinds of sins that's right here. We have not gotten very far. We have not changed. We have not gotten more technologically advanced in our sins, even if we're using a computer. It's still the same sins. We still have the same struggles. Real quickly, before I move on, I need to go through kind of how we use this Matthew's passage and this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 to interact with this idea of church discipline. As you can see, both in the first Corinthians passage and in the Matthew passage, uh, one of the first steps is going to this person to, to call them to the norm, which is flee from sexual immorality, to call them to the reality of this sin. And we call this admonition. And when we come to somebody that has fallen into sin, we our first step is in love and gentleness and our desire to. To see this person repent and change, we, we, we involve ourselves in admonition. We come to them and say, if, even if someone has expressed repentance, we have to have some kind of formal statement saying, here's the specific steps uh, to show fruit of repentance, to show that the work of the gospel is alive in their hearts. And sometimes people respond to that admonition. Um, and then there is exclusion from communion. Right. So the next step, if somebody does not show fruits of repentance, if the pastors or the elders of the church come to the person and, and show that this, this reality, this lifestyle that they are involved in is sin, they're usually excluded from communion, which is a more strenuous step, which accompanies the obvious lack of fruit of repentance, but is not as extreme as excommunication. Um, the reality is a church discipline. If you've been around the Presbyterian Church for, for a while, you, you hear some success stories, very few. And you see a lot. You hear a lot of the bad stories. I, I know stories of of wives or husbands that have just left churches and joined another church so that they didn't have to worry about what was going to happen, um, which is very sad cases indeed. 
Uh, one of my friends that was in a Bible study with me years ago, he tells a story about they were part of a small church, church about our size. And, and, and the wife wanted out. The wife wanted to leave the marriage. She was just done. She just couldn't do it anymore. And, and, the, and the pastors came to her and said that you have no grounds for divorce. And if you pursue divorce, then we will bar you from communion. And, and it's not like living in Hoover, right, where, where if something happens at this church. You just go to the church across the street. This was in a small town, you know, that, that everybody in the town went to the same little church. And that that reality, that threat of the reality broke her heart, broke her heart to the point where she bent and repented. And, and, and they've been married ever since and fully restored because the reality of, of, of the rod of the church was enough to have for, for the spirit to use that to, to bend and break her heart. It doesn't always work that way. You hope that, that, that these tangible realities can work that way to, to cause people to repent, but sometimes they don't. And so you have to move to excommunication, which is what Paul is talking about here. Remove them, purge that evil one from amongst your presence, removed from church membership, which would also exclude um, exclusion from communion and normally uh, another admonishment as well. And of course, there's also... Um, the realities of if pastors get caught in these things, they, they get disposed from their levels of leadership. These seem very difficult. Uh, not, not to make light of the situation, I thought I would read how this was done in the early church. In the post-apostolic church, after the Apostle Paul had died and John had died in the early church, we're talking about from, say, uh, AD 80 to about 300 AD. Um, this process would take about 20 years. So if you had gotten caught in some kind of grievous sin, and it's probably not something as extravagant usually as an affair. Somebody, you know, stole a loaf of bread or, or had done something or, or said something. This, this is what an individual would have to do to get back into the right standing of the church. Uh, penance, which is a person that had committed some kind of sin, would progress towards restoration through a process of three or four stages. In the four-stage process, penitents were first required to come to church, but they were not permitted to enter into the place of worship. These weepers had to stand outside the church as they begged for the prayers of the faithful as they passed. After serving the prescribed period on the outside, penitents were allowed inside as hearers and stood in the vestibule area separated from the church members. After a prescribed period, the penitents were assigned a period of service among the worshipers as kneelers. Finally, as standers, penitents could remain in the administration of the Lord's Supper, though not partaking. At the conclusion of these four stages, the bishop or presbyter would then restore the penance to communion. So if you got caught in any kind of sin back in the early church, it was fairly harsh. Even Calvin heard of the early churches as being unruly harsh right so so just if you don't realize calvin agreed to have an individual burned at the stake for not agreeing for the trinity and he said this was unduly harsh when he was talking about church discipline but i don't know what that would look like if we imagine that people had been caught in sin and they would have to stand outside the church begging for prayers it's beyond us that we don't think that people could why would they even do it? Why would they even care? I um, 
still occasionally uh, have some friends who are a part of my old community. They're, they're not really involved in the full hippie community anymore. They've grown up a little bit. Uh, but, but we get together every once in a while. None of them are, are Christians at the time. And, and actually, quite recently, a few months ago, we were out uh, having some dinner. And I don't know why it came up, but I said something about church discipline. And they looked at me like I had horns that had grown on my head and I had grown a tail. They said, like, does the church ground you? I mean, what? Why would the church can't discipline you? It just didn't even make any sense. Because if you're not a part of this community, you don't get other individuals don't have the right to say anything to you. But part of joining this community, one of the reasons why we have communion on a weekly basis is because we're not saying that our faith is just about our individualistic commitment to Jesus as our risen Savior. It's also saying that we are together. We are all together in this. And you know what? Each and every one of you will struggle and fail in one sin or another at one time or another. And you're not going to be able to do it on your own. The Christian life if, if, if there's a side meaning in this entire passage is that the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. It is meant to be done in a community of Christian brothers and sisters that encourage each other, but also warn each other. And say that this path that you're going in is dangerous. But to do it in a way, as he says, in sincerity and in truth. That, that we should have a desire for a purity and holiness in the church such that we would not want anything impure to be a part of it. Because our desire is that the church would be holy. It would be holy like a city set upon the hill. And we would desire each and every person to grow in holiness. One of my favorite prayers of Paul's is from Philippians where he says, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound in all knowledge and discernment. That, that Paul's prayer for the church... Is for their growth and holiness. Now we, we love to pray for each other's jobs. We love to pray for health. We love to pray for the birth of babies. We love to pray for all those things. But I, I would wonder how many people here in this room in the last year have prayed for another believer to grow in holiness. To actually desire that, that that would be a passion of our heart. But Paul cares deeply that the community of the faith would be faithful to God's word. Even though it's hard. So now we see the situation there. We understand the, the situation of today. We know it's a difficult passage here. It says where he talks about delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. What, what, what in the earth could Paul mean by delivering a man over to Satan? And why would he say that? Well, for Paul, there, there, there's two options, right? You're either in Christ, a part of the community of faith, or you're under the prince of the power of the air. You're under the power of Satan. Those in the church are visibly in Christ, the community of faith. And those outside the church are under the power of Satan. So whenever he says, deliver him over to Satan, he means pretty much the same thing that he says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Speaking of us before we came to Christ. And you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you had formerly walked, 
following the course of the world, following the prince of the power there, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of the disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, were by nature children of wrath, right? He says that we were under the power of the prince of the air, speaking of Satan in those terms, under wrath and destruction. And the hope is, for Paul, even in this passage, that if you excommunicate, send someone outside the church, that that would be what the Spirit uses to break their heart so that they might repent and truly repent. For the sake of time here, we, we, we have to move on here to this next section of looking kind of our kind of our emotional, heartfelt goals whenever we have to involve ourselves in this. Because we know that even in the pursuing of this, we, we have the ability to be vengeful. Even in the pursuing of this, we have the willingness to, to think ourselves better. Um, I actually listened to a, a much better sermon on this passage last night from somebody else. And he quoted uh, Cornelius Van Til. Who one of his students was uh, asking him a question when Van Til was giving a lecture and says, you know, Professor Van Til, isn't it true as you get older, you know, this Christian life gets easier? And Van Til said, well, that's just perfectionism, my son. And my sins today, my fight today are the sins of my youth. That it's. Easy for us to, to remind. These are sobering passions. Not only does it call us to, to desire the holiness and the purity of the church, but it reminds us that each and every one of us could fall into the most heinous of sins. I heard a pastor once say, he says, I know something about, he was at, you know, preaching at a really big church. He says, I know something about everyone in this room. And I think he was right. And I think I know it about everybody in this room. I don't know much about everybody in this room, but I do know this. That everybody in this room has either done things or thought of things. The like of which, if everybody else in this room knew it, you would be suicidal. Think about that for the moment. Everyone in this room has either done things or thought of things, the likes of which, if everybody else in this room knew that you had done those things or thought those things, you would be suicidal. Because that's the depravity of the human heart. Now, don't everybody think about the worst thing you've ever thought about, you know, killing your mother-in-law or something like that. But I know it's true. Not me. That's, that's just you. I don't have any of those issues. But that's true. We, and to know, I, I know this for a fact, and, and I had... I've had times where I've had different struggles and I've been able to to repent to my brothers in Christ who who would would still occasionally will call me and to say, how is this going? What's going on here? How are you? Is this, you know, because they care. They actually care. And this should be sobering. I know that if I went out and I had an affair next week, Chris Peters would be knocking on my door as soon as he found out, my other friends in this room would be knocking on my door, would be calling my cell phone, would be 
begging me to repent, to turn from from any problems in my life because they care. And it should be an encouragement. We think of this as, as this bad thing, this Ooh, this sounds really harsh. And a lot of people, they struggle. They go through a new members class. They hear that this church does church discipline. And that sounds very legalistic. And it's not supposed to be that at all. With a proper heartfelt emotional uh, realities, our goal is that we want people to repent. We Sometimes they have to be excommunicated. They have to be admonished in order for the spirit to work in their heart. But we have to realize that we have our own, own battles. And make sure that we've taken the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers. We do also know from this passage that uh, Paul at one point wrote to these individuals before. Right here in verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter to not associate with the sexually immoral people, not all at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the ungodly, the swindlers, the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of the sexual immorality or greed or idolater or even drunkard. Do not even associate or eat with such a one. Paul is trying to remind it doesn't come out in the ESV quite as well as it does. Uh, maybe the New King James or other versions. But Paul clearly had written uh, the Corinthians before, and in the previous letter, he was trying to encourage them of these things to to not associate with those people who call upon the name of Christ yet are involved in sexual immorality or drunkenness or, or swindling or thieving. But but Paul was trying to clarify what he meant was he realizes that when you go to work, right, or you go out in the world, that you're going to run into people. That are involved in other things. And he said that we don't involve in discipline. We don't involve in judgment of those who are not inside the community of faith. And this is a great caution for us in the church because it's really easy for us to hurl bombs of, you know, moral platitudes on, on people outside the church. If they're not a part of the community of faith, then we don't have a place to call them. What we need to do is call them to Christ. And if they are part of our community of faith, then Paul says, then they are bound right, by, by, by the church in which they have gathered. But we don't call somebody or hold them to the Christian standard who live outside the church. You know, whenever you come and meet a homosexual, you don't have to go up to him and say, hey, this is why this is sinful and this is wrong. And you need to repent and turn from this. And no, you need to preach the gospel. And if if. if, if God regenerates their hearts and they turn in repentance and faith and they join a church. Then you have to call them that, that this is no longer the behavior of those who are part of the faithful. That, that sometimes we, we want to judge. We sit in our cubicle. Well, look how bad they are. They, look, they lied to his wife there. They did this. And we need to be very cautious. One on, on how we view. Paul says, I don't judge those outside the church. That is for God to do. When they're outside the church, you are supposed to proclaim the realities of the risen Savior. That is what our goal role is to those people. But those inside the church, we're supposed to encourage them in holiness. Second uh, Thessalonians says this, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note 
of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as the enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul Thessalonians, again, same kind of passage that that we need to take sin seriously. But that's not doesn't mean that we don't love that person. And John, John, Jesus tells us, right, that how will his disciples be known? How will the disciples be known of Jesus for their love for one another? And if you love somebody, do you not want the best for them? If you love somebody, do you not want the best for that person? And if you love that person and you want the best for them, then you should desire that they grow in holiness. You should desire that their soul would be saved on the day of the Lord. That that should be our greatest desire for each and every person in this room. Even in the midst of heartbreak and difficulty. I've gone a little bit later, but we don't have communion this this morning. Uh, Let me just read this. I'm a terrible poet, by the way. But as I was going through this passage this week, I I thought this might be my outline, and then I just pushed it to the end. I say this. uh, So when sin be renowned, let not indifference lead to disregard. Let not the holiness of the church be stained. It is a time to mourn. Low discipline restores. Grace has might. So we fight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I do pray that uh, your spirit would give eyes to see your truth in any place that I might have brought uh, confusion. Father, that you would bring clarity. Father, this is a difficult passage and we live in an age of, of difficult times where where struggles become known throughout all the world, through social media, where, where names get thrown in the mud. And it's easy for us to get cynical. It's easy for us to get judgmental. But, oh, Father, it's also easy for us to be indifferent, to not care, to care about ourselves and our own lives, but not actually care for our brothers and sisters that we sit next to each other and, and, and worship week in and week out. Father, I pray that this would be a church. That would desire uh, the holiness of everyone in it. That we would desire that each and every one of us grow in grace and in truth. As Paul tells us in this letter, that we would grow in sincerity. Father, that our desire would be uh, for all of us to be followers of Christ. Knowing, Father, that each and every one of us are still going to struggle. In the midst of our struggles, we encourage one another. Call us to this ministry, Lord. Knowing that... Your grace is big enough to forgive anybody, to restore anybody, to renew anybody. And if you can save a sinner like me, who is fleeing from you, who is denying you, who is shaking his fist at you. And if you can change my heart, Father, you can change any heart. If you change the hearts of the people in this room, you can change the heart of anyone in which we have come that we come into contact with. Father, I pray that you would use us to encourage each other to love each other, to build each other up, but when necessary, to call each other to repentance, even when it is hard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.